All right, well, good morning again. Happy Easter. Let's look at John chapter 2. Happy Easter. Yeah, dude. Braxton's hyped today. I like it. Uh, man, Jesus is alive, and he brought a whip to church. It's going to be a good day, right? Jesus brought a whip. Jordan brought a sport coat. Things are all confusing. We don't know what's going on. It's Easter, though, so we're going to look at John 2. Man, I, if you're wondering why would you pick this text, Jordan, it's a weird Easter text. Well, to be honest, this is just where our, our, our uh, preaching calendar took us uh, as we were working through the Gospel of John. Certainly, we could have paused and, and did something more resurrection-focused, but man, as I looked at it, this, this certainly is resurrection-focused, and I think this is a day whenever we got a lot of uh, visitors and folks that don't come to church regularly, some of you for really good reasons. Uh, you've been hurt, you've been burned, or, you know, fill in the blank. Some of you for, for not so good reasons, but regardless, if, if you're here and you're like, man, I, this church thing's not really my thing, I think you'll resonate with Jesus in the passage today, because he does. He straight up brings a whip, actually goes to church, gets mad, and then makes a whip, goes back to church. It's, it's awesome. So let's just jump in. Verse 13, John chapter 2, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the scene is the Passover in Jerusalem. That means the city would be like packed with people. A city that I think normally uh, had a population of around 40,000 people would swell to, to multiple times that size uh, for this festival. Um, and so this doesn't happen in obscurity. Okay, This is not a, something that Jesus waited until only a few people were around to see. This is... Uh, this is, this is with a crowd, and I think knowing what we know about Jesus and his sovereignty, uh, that Jesus planned this, right? He didn't just snap and lose it because of the stress of the holiday. That's us, not Jesus, right? Some of y'all, how many of you guys have had to apologize to your kids already today or to your spouse? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's real, right? Get in the car. <laughs> we will get to church on time, right? We will look like we are fresh out of a magazine. And we will look like we love Jesus more than the other families. <laughs> Shh. Smile, right? Cue the four smiles. Kids come in looking scared. It's okay. Like, you're not alone. It's really not okay, but you're not alone. And you can repent later. Um, so there's a crowd for this. Jesus' ministry is full on now, right? We, we're coming off a miracle that did happen more in obscurity. We turned the water into wine. There wasn't a huge crowd for that, though. It was a wedding. It was, it was in a small town. But he's all in. Ministry is happening now. He is no longer kind of concealing who he is. And this is a, this is a big deal. So Jesus' ministry is, is, is in full gear. And he arrives at Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And as he sees the state of the temple, it provokes him to anger. What does he see? Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So, so the scene is this. The temple, the outer court of the temple has been transformed into a bazaar, a market uh, where people are selling, buying, uh, you know, animals. They're changing money. So with this influx of, of people into the city, there's a business opportunity, right? All good capitalists. Like, you can't have any, this isn't new, right? Anytime there's a crowd, like, showing up for an extended period of time, somebody's going to show up with a swag store, like, immediately, right, to just profit off of that. Like, this is that sort of thing. People see there's going to be an extended influx of people, so they're going to show up and try to uh, capitalize on that with, 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 some, uh, with some business. And so it's actually not all poorly motivated, though. People uh, have traveled a long way. So as I said, the, the city would fill up and, and uh, multiple times its size. So people are coming from, from uh, miles and miles away, and, um, you know, they don't have giant vehicles with lots of, like, cargo space. And so uh, guess what's hard to carry? Your goat, 
right? Your pigeon or to drive your oxen. Like it, it's difficult to bring your animal with you that you're going to offer to the Lord and sacrifice when you get to Jerusalem. And so the genius is, hey, w- y'all don't have to bring them. We'll sell them. You can buy them there. Now, you already know anytime you have to buy something on site, prices are like quadrupled, right? Because they know they got you. You got to buy it. And so they're going to jack it up however they need to be. But the other thing they're doing is they're exchanging money. The money changers are exchanging money from one currency to another. If you've traveled abroad, you know one of the first things you see when you land internationally is going to be what? An exchange station, right? When we landed um, in Central Asia uh, back in January uh, in a country we did not speak, and we, we, we had to buy visas on site before we could go in. And once we got in, we had you know, our friend who could translate for us and help us out. But we, we just had to do that in the airport. I have no idea what we paid for those visas, like, right? We may have gotten taken for hundreds of dollars more than we needed to because I'm just at the mercy of this exchange rate. I have no idea. I can't read. I can't hear what he's saying. He might have spoke English, but if I didn't ask, I mean, anyway, it, it's, but you know this deal, and, and um, the similar st- stuff is happening here. They know that people are sort of um, at their mercy in this moment. They've come here to worship. They can't use their foreign money to give their offerings, so they need to exchange. So guess what? They're paying double, triple, or even, even more for, for their money to just to be changed over so that they can offer it in uh, worship to God. So, so you could see some of the corruption already, but honestly, all of that is not what Jesus uh, is angry about. That's not what sets him off on his own. The presence of these booths, these sales as a way to facilitate the smooth worship of God, it's, that's, that's actually not the issue. It's not wrong that they were selling animals or even changing the money, taking advantage of people. That's different. But it's really the location of this market that sets Jesus off because it's in the temple court. Now, to understand why Jesus gets so angry, we've got to know a little bit about the temple, right? As, and here's what you need to know. As, as God was making for himself a people all the way back in Genesis and, and, and particularly in Exodus, part of the, the story of God bringing them out of slavery, he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And part of that relationship was going to involve um, God... Uh, putting a, a particular place for his presence, his glory to dwell. And that was um, in the form of, of, a, of, a, of a tabernacle, right? It started out um, in, the, in more of a portable sense, more like a tent, and then would eventually become, um, as Solomon built it uh, later, a, a huge a building, right? A, that would be the center of their, their lives as God's people, the Israelites. Exodus 25, 8. Uh, God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so God doesn't just get them out of Egypt and say, hey, good luck, guys. Maybe you won't mess it up so bad. Call me if you need me. No, he's saying, I'm going with you. I'm going to be in your midst. This is the whole point. This is the whole heart of God is to be with his people. The whole reason that we can't be with him is because of our sin. If you know the beginning of the story, God created Adam and Eve, and he was there in their midst, fellowshipping with them. Enjoy, they were enjoying him and connected to the source of life. It was their sin that separated that fellowship, and we inherited that separation. We inherited that because we are also sinners. So it has always been God's heart. He's moving toward that restored relationship. So he puts in part of their, their relationship as they walk with him to have this temple Again, it was portable initially. It gets built later. And they would gather, the, the, the people would all gather together in, this, uh, in the city of Jerusalem with the, with the temple being the center of all of their, their focus, symbolizing the center of their relationship with God. Of course, the temple itself didn't contain the whole presence of God, right? But it was symbolic 
and it did contain the Holy of Holies where God's, uh, you know, concentrated presence dwelt. And they would have to come there and offer sacrifices and, and, um, and worship him. And so it was very geographically limited, and this was part of how they related to and had their relationship with God. So uh, three times a year for major festivals, they would come to Jerusalem and worship and remember what God had done, remember his work and, um, and worship him. So this is why all the people are flocking there for this Passover. Again, the principal idea of having these animals to purchase, that's not wrong, but it continues to kind of grow in its influence. And instead of being kind of just nearby the temple in the city, the market has made its way onto the temple grounds with, with a common understanding that there's actually corruption in the temple leadership with the religious leaders, that they're selling, um, you know, renting space for these um, people to sell their, uh, their animals and change their money. So the, the, there's, there's already a profit going on here. So think of this. They want to provide a business that facilitates the worship of God, right? That's not, that's not all wrong. Like, these people are going to need these things to worship. So, but the motives grow into something more and more sinister, right? Uh, now they're using God as an opportunity for their own gain. So they're asking, okay, where can we actually put this market that we benefit from it. And they, they, they see, and there's, there's this outer court. Yeah, th that'll work, right? It's not that important anyway, but here's the deal. This is the biggest issue. This is what I think drives Jesus's anger because the outer court was the place where everyone could come. Foreigners, people who were not clean by the Jewish ceremonial rites could still come and pray and, and offer offerings and sacrifices to this God, the God of the Israelite people, because you see, yes, God's favor was concentrated to his people, right? They were set apart, sanctified, set apart by the, the sign of circumcision, by following God's law. But they, the whole point was that they would be a light to the rest of the world, that they would be like a city set on the hill, that the rest of the world would see how God has blessed these people. And as their witness is effective, it would draw other people in to come and see, to come and behold, to come and worship. And this outer court was a place of prayer for the nations. It was a place for the people that weren't a part of the Jewish nation to come and honor the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. They couldn't go any further, though. Those, those folks could, uh, right? And, and so this place was significant. God put it there on purpose, for this outer court, it had a purpose. And so, I mean, this part of the temple was for the outsiders who were, were coming in, the outsiders who were wanting to know more about this God. And that's the whole idea, isn't it? That's the whole idea of the temple is to display the glory of God so that the people may know, so that God's redemptive work can go forward. But the religious leaders, the business lobbying, the political nonsense made its way into God's worship. And they decided, right, that it wasn't really necessary to have this place for outsiders. That's a good spot. We'll, we'll go ahead and put our market there. We'll put the, 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 the things that can make us a profit there. So eventually, what was, what was good and right ritual like, began to replace the reality that the ritual was supposed to point to. Compromises were made. The worship shifted from worshiping God to worshiping worship, to doing the acts, to going and doing the things, singing the songs, offering the gifts, paying the, paying the you know, giving an offering, listening to the, the pastor, and then checking back out, right? The, the, the focus drifted from the, the worship of God to the worship of worship, and eventually it made its way 
So the, the pursuit of financial gain is what is defining the temple instead of the worship of God. So here's the deal. Some of you, some of you have seen this personified in different forms of Christianity today, haven't you? You've seen um, it, it doesn't quite look like animals out in the church lobbies, but it does look like people who are out for selfish gain and personal promotion of their brand and their self or, or whatever it is, right? We've seen prosperity gospel preachers using God's message for their personal gain, right? Taking advantage of the poorest among people in their process, going into a poor country, promising crowds of impoverished people blessing if they will simply give to this ministry and then those past, those preachers get back on their private jet and fly away, right? This is the sort of form that is often taken today. Perhaps it's more personal, though, for you. Perhaps you've seen in churches where you've attending the shift become more about money, more about attendance, more about attention, more about a brand, more about influence than they are about the worship of God. And perhaps for some of you, that's exactly why you don't come to church, because you're convinced that we're all hypocrites. Here's the good news for you today. Jesus is right there with you. He can't stomach that either. He has no intention of letting that be okay. And this is the first point I want us to see today. Verses 15 and 16, we're going to see that Jesus isn't passive. He doesn't just go, you know what? No big deal. They'll get it right. No, he's not passive. What does he do? Verse 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out their corns, the money changers, and he overturned the tables. Take these things away, he tells the people with the pigeons. You've turned, don't make my father's house a house of trade. I, did you see that? He, he didn't just bring the whip. He made it. This is like premeditated act here. He, he can no longer claim temple slaughter. He didn't just impulsively do it. It wasn't an accident. Like because of their nonsense, he reacted. No, he, he planned this. He had time to calm down as he's gathering the cords and twisting them into a whip, like he could have been like, you know what, I'll take a different approach. But no, he goes ahead and twists them into a whip and then goes and drives them out. Now, I, I, I don't know, sometimes we want to think that he used them on the people. Maybe he did, but uh, there's large animals in here. If any of you grew up on a farm, large animals don't really care what you want them to do. right? You have to, you have to get them to move in some way. I grew up on a cattle farm. We didn't have whips, but we had these things called cattle prods. And they were silent, but they had electricity in them. And I didn't think that they, uh, I, I thought the battery was dead because I thought it made a noise, like a bzzz. And maybe I've told you a story before, but one time my mom was squatted down, like looking at something. And I was a kid, and I took one of those cattle prods, electric deals, and I walked up and got her right on her thigh. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Like, she came up with a fury that I've never seen before. Like, I really thought it was dead. I thought I was just messing with her. It was not dead. Woo, and it whelped her leg up, and she lit me up. Um, so, you, but, you know, if, duh, Jordan, like if this is going to work on an animal, you know, a couple thousand pounds, it's going to need to have some juice. My mom's leg was a testament to the juice that that thing packed. So Jesus didn't have that. So he's making a whip, and he starts to drive out these animals. They're in cages. They're, they're just gathered around there. I mean, you can imagine the scene that Jesus is in. It's loud. It's, it's noisy. It's smelly. It's... It's not what God has intended for his place to be. 
And, and Jesus goes in and he starts whipping the larger animals, driving them out, telling the people with have the pigeons, the smaller animals. I, I'm assuming they just got cages and cages and cages stacked on top of each other to buy the, the smaller, uh, cheaper sacrifices of pigeons and, 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 and birds. And, and he says, get them out of here. Get them out. So Jesus confronts them he, and, he, and he runs them out. Here's what I want you to hear today. Jesus isn't a passive, soft, like Ah, shucks kind of guy. I don't know what picture you've been uh, taught about who Jesus is, but he is a he's he's a he's a carpenter. He's a man of strength, right? He's got those carpenter forearms, right? Because he's been swinging a, a hammer and handling wood. He's got calluses. He's he's tough. He can handle himself, and he starts to throw the tables around. He starts to drive out the animals, and he has raised his voice. Everybody is now watching what Jesus is doing. And everybody's attention is on this scene. Jesus has made a scene on purpose. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus cares deeply about injustice. He cares deeply about people being taken advantage of, about his word being misused, about people using the name of God for their own personal gain and abusing people along the way. And you wonder, why does God allow this? Why is God... Why is this happening in the name of God? Let me just assure you that Jesus isn't being passive forever. He will handle this. He will bring justice just like he did here. He is provoked to the point that he drives these guys out. He's physically turning over tapers. Uh, their, their money is flying all over. The animals are being driven out. It's, he's created chaos, and he did it on purpose. I want you to know that this is a passionate Savior who cares deeply about justice. He cares deeply about the grievances that you have seen in this world. Don't let yourself believe that God can't be good because he allows these things to happen. He cares more deeply than you do. He confronted evil, not just here, but he confronted it ultimately, finally and fully on the cross. Passive Savior doesn't allow himself to be slaughtered on the cross. He doesn't allow himself to, to receive that kind of blow. A coward doesn't do that. Jesus confronts evil. And one day he will, he will come back and he will deal fully and finally with the presence of sin and its effects in our world, banishing it, wiping every tear from every eye of all of his people that have placed their trust in him. So, We're going to see in just a moment that they don't actually argue with him. They're going to ask him for a sign, but they don't actually argue whether or not he's right. You know what this tells me? Everybody knew this was wrong. Jesus wasn't the first one to notice that this is not how things should be, but nobody was saying anything. Anybody else get tired of that? Anybody else get tired of people seeing injustice, knowing this is wrong, and no one's speaking up? Jesus is not that guy. He speaks up, he confronts, he is not passive. So this is part of the good news of Easter. We serve a just God. Je Jesus wasn't merely the lamb, he was the lion too. And here, as well as elsewhere, he let his roar loose on the religious people of the day. He confronts them, he calls them out. Verse 17, we're going to see that he's also passionate. He's not just not passive, but he's also passionate. His disciples remembered, verse 17, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So he's quoting from a psalm. David's talking about the, the, the passion that he has to build this temple, right? And it consumes David. 
Um, and, and Jesus is quoting that. Or they're, they're remembering, oh, this will be a part of what the Messiah will hold. This is a messianic confirmation. They're going, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, the Messiah is going to be somebody who has a zeal for the house of God. So he's passionate. Jesus is passionate about people knowing the glory of God and the good news of the gospel. This is why he's so angry. It's not that the temple stinks. It's not that in its chaos. It's not even that they're selling these things. It's that they have replaced the very point of the temple was for God, people to come and know God, know the glory of God, to experience him, to have a relationship with him, and they've replaced that with the worship of money or at the very best, the exchange of goods. And, and Jesus cares a lot about that because this is what drove him into our time, into humanity, was his zeal for the glory of God. We just studied in earlier passages of John that, that Jesus has come to display for us the nature, the fullness of who God is. The God that we can't see, the God that we can't know, Jesus puts him on display. He comes, he is God, he was God, and he comes and he adds to his godness flesh, and there we see the fullness of who he is. So he's passionate about people knowing the glory of God and hearing the good news of the gospel. So when church becomes about anything other than God's glory and the blood of the Lamb Jesus, right, that purchased us the ability to be in relationship with him, when church becomes anything else, when it becomes about the glory, the fame, and reputation of anybody other than Jesus, the pastor, the band, the church's brand, the website, social media, whatever it is, when any of those things become the point, we are making a mockery and we are in danger of the same sin as the temple officials of this day. Jesus is going to go on in a moment to flip the script and, and, and say, hey, yeah, you're worried about this temple, but I've come to be the new and the better and actually the final temple. See, this, the temple was so central to their, their life and their worship. It, it prompted a lot of conversation, especially with people who were not purely Jews. They would debate, right, this religion, some Samaritans. We're going to see in chapter 4 in a few weeks where Jesus is having this conversation with the, the woman at the well, and, and she goes, okay, well, maybe you'll know which mountain are we supposed to worship on then, which temple is right, and Jesus says, it's no longer going to be about the location. It's about spirit and truth, right? We meet with God in Jesus. Jesus is coming here, and he's, and he's, he's showing the theme of, of these four stories in chapter 2 and 3 is out with the old and in with the new. Jesus is saying the old has served its purpose. He has come to be the new and better, and he's been the new and the better temple. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of of deity dwells bodily. See, the temple is actually just for the middle of the story. You realize that? There was no temple in the, in the, in the beginning, in the garden, was there? Why not? Was God not there? Did they, did they not worship him? No, they didn't, they didn't need a temple because God was in their midst. God was there mingling with them. His presence did not have to be concealed behind a curtain and a holy of holies and entered into only by the blood of animals because there was no separation between God and his creation. And so he was just there in the midst. So that's how it started. And guess what? That's also how it ends too. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, in, in the new heavens, the new earth, when this is all over, when God's redemptive story is complete, there will be no temple in the city. Why? 
for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus says, I've come to to dwell with you, to tabernacle with you, to to remain, to, to stay, to be in your midst. So, this is why we can meet in a pole barn. We're no longer worried about ornate, detailed, expensive buildings, right? But it's not because they were a bust and we gave up on them. They, they've, the temple has served its purpose, right? There was a point to the temple. It was to point us to Jesus. It was to provide a space where we could connect with God. But he has come to be the new, the better, and the final temple. You can see Jesus, by making his sacrificing, atoning work complete on the cross. He has provided a way for sinners to be cleansed of the sin that separates us from God. His resurrection establishes this victory over sin once and for all. So the sin problem, the very thing that has kept us away from God and away from the relationship with God that we so desperately long for, that sin problem has been dealt with. And he can now dwell within us. We are the temple of God. His presence dwelling in his people, no longer contained to his temple. As the embodiment of the temple, right, where God was present among his people, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the point of salvation. It's not about moralism or financial prosperity. It is rich and abiding presence of God that is the source of life, the source of hope and victory. First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, hey, church, you are like living stones. What's that about? Well, stones are what they would use to build. And he says, you are now the living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. It's no longer about the temple anymore. It's about the people. And the people, you, church, are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And, you, and we're here to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the new and better Passover lamb. He's the new and better temple. The people got, they, they got the temple after their exodus, right? When God rescued them from slavery. Part of their new life was fellowship with God. He had this tabernacle here. Right? Jesus has come to be the new and better exodus as well. What does that mean? He's come to be our rescue from slavery. He looks at a world and his heart is broken because he sees the world struggling with sin, struggling with being enslaved to this or that and all of those things. And Jesus says, I'm going to come. I hear your groaning. I hear your crying. And I've heard your prayers. And I'm here to rescue you. That's the offer of salvation from Jesus is to rescue you, not just to forgive you and hope you do better, but to actually rescue you out of your sin and your shame and your darkness and your guilt and whatever your story is full of. He says, I want to rescue you, bring you out from. And as the better exodus, as the new and better exodus, his temple, the place where we meet with God is in Jesus Christ himself. None of that's possible, though, without the resurrection. We see in verse 18 that, that the resurrection is actually the key to understanding all that Jesus is, who that he is, and all that the Bible says, right? So, so here's how they respond to Jesus. You picture, go back to the scene. Jesus is thrown over tables, changes, flying everywhere. Animals are screaming, and, and it's chaos. And they confront him, and they say, hey, 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 um, what sign do you show us for doing this? So, again, they don't even argue that he's wrong. It's kind of more like, uh, 
Remember when you were kids and you're like, who died and made you boss? Right? Were you to tell me what, you know, like you all know what you're doing is wrong, and that one kid's like, uh, I don't think we should do that. And you're like, shut up, mom's not here, right? This is kind of their response. They, they know they're wrong, but they're kind of just posturing up and being like, um, who are you, man? You better than us? You'll call us out? You're going to need to show us some authority. You're going to need to prove that you have the authority to call us out in this way. And this actually reveals the root of, their, of the real issue here, of how they got to this place of denigrated worship in the first place, right? It's a low view of God. They, they're thinking highly of themselves and lowly of God. You remember the Bible says that what the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, right? But they have a lack of reverence and awe of God, and that has allowed them to have a mindset of profit, of consumerism, and even idolatry to seep into the temple practice. Because here's the deal. The other pictures we have of the temple of God, the, the, the place where God's presence is concentrated is not a place that anybody takes lightly. In the Old Testament, as this is being introduced, there is great detail put in place for us to know how to approach the presence of God. And if we fail to abide by that great detail, there will be nothing but remains to pull out. The, the people actually die from not honoring the system that God put in place of how God's people are supposed to approach him, right? The, 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 the temple that was housing the presence of God is a place of incredible fear and reverence. Incredible fear and reverence. Right? You see some of David's men, as they're bringing in the altar, they, they accidentally, one of them accidentally touches it, and, and, he, and he's dead. You see in Isaiah chapter 6, such a famous passage, this, this vision of the temple room of God. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and above, above him stood the seraphim. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And, and Isaiah, he doesn't be like, uh, who are you to call me out? I'm going to need a sign. No, he says, woe is me. I'm lost I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are unclean. And I'm going to die because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The temple's purpose was to house the glory of God, to be a meeting place purchased by the blood of sacrifice of animals so that God's people could be in his presence. Here's the deal. As we close, many of you are here today, and you're okay with there being a God. Like, you have pride in being an American, right, being, fill in a blank, right, you live, you're, you're proud that you live in a country that has morals and freedoms, and, and you, you even like being able to pray to him when things get hard or they're out of your control, but the idea of God meddling in your life, telling you what's okay and what's not okay, the idea of full and total surrender, full and total dedication, giving your life to him, that's not somewhere you're interested in going. That's not somewhere you're willing to go. Here's the deal. Jesus is not the kind of Savior that is content with that sort of nationalistic, moralistic acknowledgement of him. Right? Statements like this about rebuilding the temple in three days. This is what Jesus says. He says, they ask for a sign. He goes, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's crazy talk for multiple reasons. Right? Jews go, but it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? John adds, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
right? And then when he was raised, the disciples, the light bulb comes on, and they, they, they get it. But what, what Jesus is saying here is, listen, I'm not okay with just your, your mild acknowledgement of this religion as your choice of rituals that you're going to go through. It's these sorts of statements about him being the temple, about him raising his body back up. He's saying to them, your corruption, your greed, your passion for personal gain is going to destroy this temple. And he's talking about 40 years from now when the Romans would come in because of the and they, it would actually destroy that physical temple. But he's also saying, your greed, your selfish gain is actually going to destroy me too. Jesus knows that it's that very posture that he's seeing resist him here is what will lead them to crucify him on a cross. He says, but though it, though it is destroyed, I will raise it back up again. So when you come wondering, man, who, who is this Jesus to call me out? I hope that today you see that Easter is the answer to who that Jesus is. The disciples, verse 22 <clears throat> They, they get it. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. <clears throat> oh, yeah. He said, we're going to destroy the temple, and he'd raise it again in three days. <clears throat> and then they believed the scripture and all of the word, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here's the deal. Maybe you're resisting Jesus for a number of reasons. Maybe you're not really sure this thing requires this of you, or maybe it really is just like a religious deal. You're, you're okay with doing the right thing, but you're not sure about giving yourself over to him completely. I would encourage you, start with the resurrection. It is the key to understanding all that Jesus has said and certainly who he is. He is the only one who has authority to call our lives out, <clears throat> to call us to full surrender. Here's, it's statements like these that get Jesus killed, and they sort of force our hand. Jesus doesn't allow us the option of just being a good moral teacher. He either is God or he's a lunatic. You have to either kill Jesus or crown him. That's where he pushed them to with statements like this. And honestly, that's where he pushes you to as well. Because he's not okay with a partial, like, you know, throwing off some offering to him. He's coming for the stuff in your life that keeps you from him. He's coming and he's going to mess up your rhythms. The things that keep you from him, the things that keep you from life in him, he's going to come and he's going to mess them up. And you're either going to have to dismiss him altogether or you're going to have to crown him as the king of your life. There are no other options. So what sign does he give? Who do you say that you are to tell us how we're supposed to act, Jesus? He says, I'm the truth and the life. You're going you're to see me dead and three days later you'll see me alive again. Nobody else talks like that. Nobody else has that authority. He's the resurrected Savior of the world. He's the maker of the universe. He's the beginning and the end. History pivots on Jesus' existence. I dare you to take an honest look, if you're here and you're a skeptic, take an honest look at the resurrection, at the historical evidence. At the, like, it is really hard. You've got to want to not believe it. It demands, here's Josh Medall, the evidence that demands a verdict, Right? There's been lots of books written, Case for Christ. Like there, There's a lot of objective reasons to believe that this Jesus did, in, in fact, come back from the dead. And when you realize that's who he is, it makes sense of the rest of the Bible. It makes sense of all of the, the crazy stories, the things he calls you to, 
But if this is true, man, it demands a verdict from you personally. But here's the deal. Most of you, I don't think that's where you're at. I don't think most of you don't believe in him. I think it's that you don't fear him. I think it's that you're too comfortable. You've been inoculated to the truth of the gospel, that if you pray to Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sins, and you go to heaven. I think we've become too comfortable, and we, we actually think Jesus is pretty passive, and he's kind of a pushover Messiah. Here's the deal. He made a whip, and then he proceeded to confront. For you, if you're honest about your life, he's been intentional about bringing you here now. Maybe you've been wrestling with questions about the meaning of life, wrestling with discontentment, a low-grade just kind of disillusionment, disillusionment with what's life has brought you, the things you thought would satisfy you. Maybe you've gotten them all, and you realize, man, I'm still hungry. Maybe you've never been able to get any of them all, but I want you to see in those circumstances, that's Jesus pursuing you here and now. What will you do with this Jesus? Calling you out, confronting you. The resurrection demands a response. Let's pray. Jesus, come and overwhelm us with your, <clears throat> with your glory so that we might surrender all that we have to you. I pray that, that your spirit would come and send sinners to our knees in worship of you, that you would send people who don't yet know you, that you would reveal to them your goodness, that you would call them to a, a, a life surrender to you, that you would man, overwhelm them with the grace that they can be forgiven. And for the rest of us, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would surrender more fully, more wholly to you, that we would celebrate and let the resurrected Jesus define all of our lives. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Come. Amen. May the altar's open. Uh, we're going we're gonna to celebrate. But if you need to pray, you come on up. We'll pray with you. Bring somebody with you. We're going to celebrate. We're going to end our service with celebration. Go get your kids if you want, if they're back there. The two songs. We're going to blow the roof off this place. Jesus is alive. Amen.